0: Welcome, everybody, to the Gameology Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. I'm here with game designer, developer, player, Attila. Hello there. And on this podcast, we do a deep dive into different elements of game design. On today's episode, we're talking about innovation in gaming, how gaming has changed throughout the years. And Attila was just talking to me off air, because this is a radio show, maybe, in Toronto. And I'm older than Attila. Attila, how old are
1: you? I'm 22.
0: 22. I'm 32 in a month. So, I grew up uh, playing 2D games that didn't have voice acting, and until your first Zelda was? Wind Waker. He's a young buck, and he's accomplished a lot in those years, and he knows a lot more about game design than me, but I like to be along for the ride. So, one of the innovations I wanted to bring up in gaming, and we're going to talk about the pros and cons of each, is voice acting. Now, I'm all for voice acting in, in some ways, but I want to talk about how it's changed certain games maybe for the negative, because you might think, Well, it's great, you don't have to read. Reading's boring, reading's for losers. I don't even know how to write anymore. If I wanted to read, I would read a book. Exactly. This is <laughs> it's an interactive medium. So <laughs> um what I wanted to say one of my main points with voice acting is that in say, Final Fantasy, Final Fantasy 13, there's some incredibly annoying characters. And maybe you've played a game where the voice acting really rubbed you the wrong way. And I think that that's something that I encountered far, far less in games that had uh, written dialogue, because I'm in charge of that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to read it in my own voice and be like, oh, I'm annoying myself with the way I'm reading it. Now, what do you
1: think of that, Attila? No, that's a fantastic observation there. You you, you definitely touched upon something that's very true that I, I, um, up to until you mentioned it just now, I was like, oh yeah, you're, you're totally right. Because uh, playing a lot of Nintendo games, I don't actually play terribly many games that feature voice acting, just because um, what Nintendo will do in a lot of their games is they'll have a sort of stylized method of voice acting, um, a la Midna and Twilight Princess, or the Animal Crossing, just like the little gibberish that the characters speak. And I think that sort of helps in the transition of like giving characters something that feels like a voice, but it doesn't feel like something that is... I don't know, that can get that grading and it makes things a bit more universal. You obviously don't have to translate it. It's a good application of voice acting and obviously one that requires a lot less <laughs> separate recording sessions.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's sort of something that Nintendo does better than anybody. And I think that's playing to their hardware. Now, Nintendo originally came up with this sort of googly-gawky because they had uh, cartridges when PlayStation had CDs. So, while PlayStation was exploring the new medium that a CD allowed and having wonderful voice acting in Resident Evil, they were um, Nintendo was like, "Well, we can't do that. So, we can have a couple wiggle woggles and some noises." And if you've played the Zelda games on the N64, you're going to hear a lot of the same um, voice samples. Hey, of very listen. Yeah. And now talking about grading and annoying, that can get annoying in a way if because it is so similar and you can get um, so desensitized to it in a way that mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's too much. And I think that they tried to rectify that in Majora's Mask by toning it down a little bit and having a bit of a bell sound. Um, but actually, I didn't even think about that is that how much money they're saving by not having to translate it because you don't have to have a Japanese or an English googly-gockly noise. And I remember going from Star Fox on the Super Nintendo to N64, where they added those voices. Mm. And that was one, probably one of the first N64 games that had voice acting. Extremely compressed voice acting, but it sounded good enough for the time. Uh, it completely changed my viewpoint of these characters, because playing the Super Nintendo one and having an idea in my mind of what these guys sounded like, I thought, to me, the Toad, Slippy, was like more of a gruff, big, fat Toad. Yeah, like a bullfrog a... kind of thing. Yeah, but in there, he was like the young idiot. Yeah, exactly like whiny and and they completely changed the attitude of them and and all of a sudden the rabbit who i to me was like the young and spunky one became this old farmer getting in the crop duster one more time
1: more like your father
0: exactly now that it can be more immersive for people it can convey to people that maybe are not into reading i mean i love reading and i grew up reading like crazy but for some people that's maybe that could be something that stops them from playing a game it would be a damn shame but i do not deny the possibility absolutely and it's um i think reading something that everybody should to try to do but i I just know that people are different you know maybe you're dyslexic or maybe you're blind and you can only play a game with that or i think you're
1: gonna have other problems playing a game if you're blind
0: but isn't that great that working within limitations you could play a game that's for blind people um that's purely audio experience it could be like a great horror game so um other than voiceovers um Another thing we've seen innovating throughout the time, and this is maybe a bone of contention you've heard from a lot of PC gamers is that they feel like these wonderful, beautiful, in-depth experience that they have on their desktop, once they've installed all the patches and the game stops crashing, is that games have been streamlined for the lowly, console console race games and for stop crash. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly. And we've now a good example of that is, say, Deus Ex. Mm-hmm. Deus Ex was a revolutionary game because it was a wonderful hybrid of first-person shooting with RPG mechanics, multiple ways to go through a level. And when it came up with a second, sequ- it was available only on the PC with ports to the PS2. But when it came to the sequel, they wanted to put it also on the original Xbox, which was a very powerful machine at the time. And uh, it was simplified. Now, a lot of PC gamers hated this. They felt it was dumbed down. They didn't like the menu of it. They didn't like how you're playing and the mechanics. I myself, that was my first Deus Ex. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. I got the atmosphere, and uh, I can see now that I played the other ones how simplified
1: that one was. But that is just something that we've seen. Now, are you much of a PC gamer? Are you a console guy? I kind of like walk the line. There's obviously some experiences that are easier to get on console. Um, just like I, I like the sort of encapsulated experience. There are some games that only release like a lot of Nintendo's best on console. But um, I think if we can uh, if we can look at these these games that you that a lot of people have complained about being like dumbed down for the console release. The thing is, I don't so much think that the games are being dumbed down for consoles. Yes, a controller has less buttons. Should your game require 26 buttons to play? I don't think so. I think if you have that much inherent complexity in having that many different buttons for different actions, um, gosh, I, I don't know how you'd even begin to like really wrap your head around the game like that. Um, I'm thinking of, real quick example, I'm thinking sure. of TIE Fighter. Mm. And TIE Fighter is a game that uses
0: quite a lot of different buttons, a lot of the F keys, and it really gives you this feel of I'm piloting this spaceship and I feel like uh, like the navigation guy on, on mm-hmm. Star Trek. And you know, as your hands are flying across the keyboard, I've seen people map that to a controller, but it's a bit of a nightmare, but uh, please continue. Well,
1: that, that's the thing. is like I, I feel like the fault is not in mapping it to a controller in the first place. The fault is in a or controller mapping. I think that there are ways of creating experiences that transcend input methods. Um, So long as you have an understanding of how the control spec is going to work across those different input methods, uh, you cannot expect to create one single input method that is going to work identically across uh, keyboard input versus gamepad input. You're dealing with the difference of like not having the mouse of being able to click on things. You need to have uh, support for like the analog stick being very different from just like WASD input. And like if you have a menu that takes the shape of like a selection wheel, that's something that works reasonably well with a joystick and reasonably well with a mouse, but not as well with like a up, down, left, right arrow key selector. Um, So there's a lot that's lost in poor conversions um, onto... Uh, consoles to make things more universal, but it's not the fault of making games more universally available. That's not where the problem lies. The problem lies in doing it poorly.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And it's it's um, it's a sense of ownership. It's like, well, we had this first, and you took this beautiful thing that we loved, and you and you dumbed it down. We actually this was um. Uh, a topic of conversation we came upon sort of spontaneously mm-hmm. based on the last week's episode when we were talking about the uh, sequels that try to reinvent the wheel and a lot of times for the worse and i think it's when you love a game so much and you see this brand new edition of it and it's been sort kind of innovated into a way that is uh, different and maybe for someone else mm-hmm. and it's almost like people coming in and taking your jobs like people are coming in and they're taking they're taking your games away now a huge Huge jump in gaming that we saw along around the same times as voice acting, uh, but a little bit before, is the jump from two dimensions to three dimensions. Mm -hmm. And we saw when this happened that games had to find a new way to do it. And Nintendo hit it out of the park right away with Mario 64 and Zelda as well, coming up with uh, Z-targeting and Zelda. uh, And generally figuring out the camera in Mario. I mean, there were a lot worse camera Mm -hmm. angles. I mean, that used to be a huge thing for... The first couple of generations of uh, three dimensional games, you constantly saw reviews where people were talking about the camera angles, mm-hmm. and now it's it's become so universally mapped to the right joystick that you don't even really think about it and um that's why the controllers have become standardized and it's just really not an issue anymore, but Mario had figured it out, but it does change things in a way now in a two dimensional game let's say look let's look at two dimensional Mario if a goomba is coming towards you and you stand and do nothing, you are gonna die if you don't jump you're gonna get hit by him, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now that creates a lot more of a bottleneck of enemies coming at you and increases the danger. Now Goombas in Mario 64, it's nice that they're there because you recognize them, but they're far less dangerous because with 360 degrees of movement, If they're moving at that slow speed, it's very, very easy to just run around them. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're like, it's like watching an Olympic athlete play with a a bunch of retirees. I mean, it's just, there's no contest anymore, but you can still use the platforming. That can be the same. But in a way, we saw with Mario 64, at least it became more of a puzzle game. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened with Ocarina of Time and why um, I actually started with the 3D Zeldas, but went back and played the 2D, the very first one. And I was blown away at how much more of an arcade experience it was. Because you were dodging almost it was almost like a shoot 'em up. It was like a bullet hell that was happening where you're dodging all these elements that are all across the screen. Whereas in the 3D Zeldas, they knew that people were coming to this and had to be retaught how to operate in a 3D space. It was challenging for people. The camera was a little tougher. So they dumbed it down in a way. And the Zelda games became a lot more of an RPG with puzzle elements, mm-hmm. and more of a puzzle game with RPG elements. Walking around, talking to people, yeah, it's charming. But that that intense arcadey feel was now gone, and I think that that is a bit of a loss.
1: Yeah, but they they had a fantastic opportunity to sort of bring that back with uh, the recent link between worlds um, on the 3DS. So you're you're entirely right in saying that like these games, um, like th- there is a fundamental and like. It's a it's a very real design hurdle to translate an experience from two D to three D. You are you, you cannot kid yourself in saying like you are making a different game. It has the same like character artwork. The like the protagonist might be the same, but any type of game where you add a new access to the player's movement, you know, it would be folly to say that you can get away with creating the same experience, Sonic. <clears throat> um, yeah, there's just simply some franchises that handle that transition better than others. Like Mario, you mentioned, is a fantastic example. Like They really nailed the whole concept of the 3D platformer. And you're entirely right in saying that what enemies that used to be very dangerous in 2D are suddenly like, well, I can just go around you. I don't have to think about pathing around you. I can just literally move a little bit to my left and suddenly I'm on a different motion vector towards this character. Um, and you ended up seeing different types of challenges being imposed on the player, making them much more about physically traversing the environment than actually dealing with enemies, which is why a lot of the later Mario games would feature things like the flood jetpack in Mario Sunshine, or the shake to spin jump in Mario Galaxy. It, just, it was challenges that had more to do with the actual platforming itself, and that works really well in the 3D environment, as opposed to the dealing with enemies side of things which works much much better in the two-dimensional plane
0: now i wanted to talk about uh, actually you brought up waggle controls now that is a huge innovation in gaming that we've seen where in a way they were moving forward but and with something new Mm -hmm. but in a way they were looking back and i think if you put an original nintendo controller or um, a game controller and someone who's never played a game before, they would very naturally move the controller along, and that was something that you saw. And as people, as gamers, we play for a long time, we generally lose that instinct. Now, the the Wii mote was a, was a genius design in that it felt like a portable phone or something that people could easily hold. And they brought the number of buttons down. You were no longer in charge of four face buttons, four shoulder buttons, and two clickable joysticks, as well as a D-pad, start and select. You had just uh, two or three buttons, just it, enough. Or A, even
1: one A on your under your thumb, B under your sort of trigger, and then not even the D pad at the top. I mean, it, if you're also holding it unchecked, then you get the addition of the analog stick, and then the C and Z buttons. Fantastic, and that's so they sort of simplified it,
0: um, trying to get something new out of it, and it was. What I like that the Wii mote did was, uh, I liked that as a pointer. I liked it almost as a mouse substitute, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was a totally lost opportunity that they didn't try to use it more for, like, shooters and, and fine additions. Waggling, in a sense, is good for, say, Wii bowling, something like that that got everybody into it. More casual experience. Exactly. But I, I find it very disruptive to have to, like, shake a controller. And when I'm playing a precise platformer, say, like, Donkey Kong and that is all about timing and precision. I don't want to have to um, wiggle that because I feel like it really throws me off, mm-hmm. and I felt like it was it, it started to feel really gimmicky. Um, yeah. And we saw this with everybody jumping on board. I mean, this was an era of the accessories. You had Rock Band, Guitar Hero. People were filling up their living rooms with all kinds of things. They were playing Connect, the Wii Fit Balance Board. Remember how popular that was? It wasn't. <laughs> it was insane. I have and one. It, And it's, I mean, they were ideas and it's always great to see that innovation. And that's why you never want to see a one console situation because Mm -hmm. you need to have that competition. You need to have everybody trying it and coming up with, uh, with different ideas. But how do you see us moving
1: forward with, with that sort of technology? Do you see that getting more popular? I think it's, we, we sort of hit an interesting space where like waggle in place of a button never felt like a proper use of motion controls. I think that giving um, the sort of extra shake to Mario to get that uh, small additional jump slash attack in Mario Galaxy made the game feel a bit more visceral, especially when you would do something like you shake the, you you sort of like swat the controller and you whack a coconut and it smacks into an enemy. And that made, that felt really good. But there were an awful lot of implementations where it really would have felt like man, if I could just have a button to press instead of shaking this thing, that would just be great. Um, But in fact, I think we're actually going to see a large increase in the amount of motion controls uh, that we see in certain types of game experiences because of the advent of VR. Mm -hmm. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Because in VR... You're Now, you're seeing different
0: implementations of it. There are some VR situations that are actually becoming bundled with Xbox controllers, mm-hmm. and that'll work, but it seems to make a lot more sense and to be a lot more immersive to have sort of move controllers or uh, the HTC Vive, the, uh, the touch controllers that they have, uh, because when you come up with a new way to play and a new technology, it's very easy to, at first, just take old experiences that work and try to... Shoehorn them in mm-hmm. and hammer it in and be like, all right, we're going to take Mario, but we're going to put it in VR. How are we going to do it? We'll figure it out. But really, when that technology starts to shine is when developers get their heads around it and are able to make experiences that only work on that. Now, a game I was just talking about on um, the Game Thing Talk Show was uh, it's going to be developed by Insomniac and it is a magic casting game, first person magic, and you're mm. using your hand motions. Like Harry Potter, you're drawing symbols and you're waving around. If you watch somebody play this, they look like an idiot. But when you're in the game, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And that's really exciting to see where the technology for VR is going to go. Now, uh, what I wanted to bring up was there was a phase in gaming where realism was super important. Everybody Mm -hmm. loved it. And I'm talking about Grand Theft Auto San Andreas time and Metal Gear Solid 3 time where people and even around Shenmue as well where people thought the more realistic we can make this, the more immersive it's going to be. And you were having to make your characters eat. And in Grand Theft Auto, it was like having your characters work out so they look differently. And for me, I really hated it. At first, it seemed a little bit interesting, but I want to escape from the... I don't want to play a game that's about sweeping the floors and doing the dishes. (laughs) I want to sweep my floor and do the dishes so I can relax and go fly in a spaceship to
1: Mars and not worry about sweeping it. Have you not heard of Sweep the Floor Simulator 2016? No, and I hope I never do, and I hope it doesn't get you on. <laughs> uh, I wanted to sort of touch upon that uh, subject of m- the immersion or the like increased fidelity of games. And I think that something that uh, is no, not, not as much of a point of debate as it used to be, people just tend to acknowledge that games that were more stylized when they originally came out tend to hold up better over time, um, which is why we see things like Legend of Zelda Wind Waker... S- <laughs> They made an HD remake of it for some reason, but the original still looks fantastic. Whereas you had games really of the sort of PS1, um, N64 era, where any game that tried to look, quote-unquote, realistic in that time frame just looks so terribly polygonal now that it just, it's really difficult to make out what things were supposed to be. And those are the games that are really in need of graphical facelifts. But... I'm really glad to see that now we are finally at an era where while certain games can really push the boundaries of photorealism um plenty of developers especially independent developers um who don't have the budget to make these like massive gorgeous photorealistic games are creating experiences which are stylized and ironically are going to last longer than the developers who are pumping tons and tons of money into creating those photorealistic experiences. Absolutely. It's like looking at CGI in movies where it doesn't matter how groundbreaking and how good it looks at the time. In five years, it's going to look old. It's not going to hold up like practical effects like Fifth Element. Some of the stuff, the the practical effects in that still look great to this day. But the um, non-practical effects, the CGI that they used in that movie stands like a sore thumb.
0: Absolutely. Um, You can look at stuff from the original Star Wars. Mm -hmm. Like, look at the uh, first trilogy and look at the CGI in there and how awful it looks now. But you're absolutely right. And I think that's such a golden time now, how gaming is innovated, where you look at um, the original games for the NES and Super Nintendo generation, how small the teams were and what they could put out in that time. And now we've gotten to a point where AAA teams have hundreds of people and cost hundreds of millions of dollars, but indies are able to make it with one, two, four-man teams, 10-man teams, whatever. And they're able to make something that looks great and will still continue to look great because they put some personality into it Mm -hmm. and if you do choose to go in that direction you can um make something that is visually very very interesting or at least i mean we've seen it with um sort of the 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 retro love for pixelized Mm -hmm. graphics which in a way is a little silly because it wasn't that it looked pixelized that we liked It was that it was hand-drawn, beautiful pixel art, Mm -hmm. which when we saw the switch to 3D, all of a sudden became a bad thing. People thought Castlevania Symphony of the Night, what is this load of crap? Why are we bothering with this? And now you look back and you compare Castlevania Symphony of the Night to any other game on the PlayStation at the time. Castlevania 64. Absolutely. It's just a gorgeously hand-drawn game that has become too expensive to do. Mm-hmm. And now you end up with these sort of two and a half D hybrids where it's cheaper to just make a 3D model where so we've seen that where 3D has innovated in a good way for developers mm-hmm. in that you can just make a like with your game it's like you make a wireframe yep. of a character and then he can kind of interact and almost be like a
1: ragdoll. Yeah, well it's the it's the concept of like um creating a skeleton of something that you can animate. Uh, without having to create separate hand drawn frames that's just that concept of like creating a rig and parts that you can move around as opposed to having to animate all those parts in a new position every single time right and and that can
0: give you so much more um spontaneity and a lot more real, like just it's a lot easier to create mm-hmm. in that yeah. way but it it does you are kind of giving up on that uh that beauty that we had earlier, but we are seeing that with Indies now in other ways bringing it back i mean game like uh Ori in the Blind Forest, which isn't a super indie title, is made by a larger team, but like gorgeous games. Mm-hmm. And it's it's incredible to see now what is coming out
1: with games that are made by small teams that look like storybooks come to life.
0: Cartoons come to life.
1: Yeah, I think it just really the some final thoughts that I want to touch upon here is like that we've discussed all these like changes that we're seeing in the, the gaming industry between like your lifetime, my lifetime. We're on the advent of VR as we sit here recording this. Uh, and some fantastic experiences we see ahead of us. Really, I think the the reason that we're we're sort of seeing an increased polarization between these sort of games that feel like they're being dumbed down and made for larger audiences are in large part because that is kind of what's happening. We are having these like massive AAA games made for every conceivable console with photorealistic graphics by hundred man teams, and they're expensive. So they need to be. Um, sort of given that more mass appeal, um, or at least have a very, very strong niche appeal so that they can recoup their investment. And on the opposite side of that, we've got the blossoming indie scene. In some ways, it's a bit crowded actually, um, where people are creating these more bite-sized experiences that can appeal to smaller and more niche audiences, and they don't have as big of an investment so they can afford to make game design decisions that aren't necessarily as popular with everybody, but they're incredibly popular with the people who are like you know decrying like, "Oh gosh, you know, games just aren't the way they used to be when I was a kid that's
0: going to wrap up this episode. You can find me on Twitter and on YouTube under Game
1: Think Talk and Attila they can find you. They can follow me on Twitter, at bluishgreenpro, and you can also find me on my website, bluishgreenproductions.com, where I'll be posting a blog just with my extended thoughts on the subject we discussed today. Bye for now.